And uh, good morning. Welcome to the Brookside campus. Uh, I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, it's great to uh, see many familiar faces and some newer faces. Erin uh, did a great job. It made me laugh. She, she found, you know, two gray hairs. Uh, what do you do when you find lots of gray hairs? Uh, so I guess I'm the gray hair today, but uh, we are just delighted that you are here, and uh, I hope you sense Christ's presence uh, here with us as we seek to worship him today. So uh, again, it's a delight for me to be with you, and I uh, always love being at Brookside. So, again, my name is Tom Nelson, in case uh, that's a foreign concept to you. I hope it's not foreign forever. <laughs> when we hear the word Exodus, there are a lot of things that come to our mind, but I want to suggest whether we are you know, younger or older, and we have a variety of generations here this morning, that often we think of the classic movie by Cecil B. DeMille, uh, The Ten Commandments. It was an epic movie, um, and uh, when we say the word Exodus... I want to suggest to you that uh, Cecil DeMille's cinematic eyes watch over our shoulders. Because most of us, when we hear the word Exodus, we think of Charlton Heston as the great Moses, right, who is uh, releasing uh, God's people. We think of a burning bush. We think of nasty plagues. I mean, that's sort of the image that comes to us, right? I mean, when we think of Exodus, we think of this great rescue. But rather than thinking just of a great rescue... I'd like to be a bit contrarian this morning. It's not that Exodus is uh, not about a great rescue. It is indeed. But I want to suggest to you for your consideration that the Exodus is really much more written about a great rescuer. And why I say that is, first of all, how the book begins. It's interesting to me that Exodus is, again, one of the greatest adventure stories of all time, would you say? I mean, thousands of years old. But we remember it. But it was originally written uh, in the Hebrew language. And above the scroll was the title. The title of Exodus in the Hebrew language is the Hebrew word Shamaoth. And uh, we might think that is translated English Exodus, but it's not. There's only one word that is the title of this grand story. And it's this word Shamaoth. In English, Shamaoth means names. And so you go, well, that's a big story for a little title. You know, it's like, it seems like a big story like that should have a different kind of title, doesn't it? Like a grand title. Names? It's like my favorite movie this year. My favorite movie this year is one maybe you've seen, maybe you haven't. It's called The Words. Sort of an artsy one, but it's phenomenal. But it says a simple title, The Words. And it's a marvelous movie for a simple title. Well, Exodus is like that. Um, Exodus has this little simple title for this grand story, and the title given to it by the writer is Names. Hmm. So what I want to suggest to you, that this little simple title really is an important idea, because this great story that we're going to look at this morning is really more about the great rescuer and his great name than the great rescue. And woven through the book of Exodus is the literary thread that raises this question all the way through the book. And the question is this. Who is this God of the Exodus? And this morning, in the text we read, we're going to look at more carefully, we're going to dive in a bit, because it's a rich text, really answers this question that is woven all the way through the book of Exodus. It answers it in two ways. Who is this God of the Exodus? And it answers us first that this God is a God who reveals himself. 
a God who makes himself known, but also that he is a God who rescues people. So if you're taking notes this morning in your mind, or you want to stay with me, or you're taking notes on paper, this is where the text takes us. It's about a great name, not just a great rescue, but it's a name of a God, the God, who reveals himself to us, who makes himself known, and a God who rescues us, okay? So that's where the text takes us. So if you have a Bible this morning, and at Christ Community, we we love God's masterpiece, so we hope you bring it in paper or electronic form. If you have it, I'd like you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 6 as we explore this together. Now, as we enter the story, before diving in, let's remember where we are. As a congregation uh, throughout our city, we are uh, discovering the whole story of the Bible, which has really been fun, and we're calling it Open Here, and we're encouraging everyone to open their Bible every, every day and see the big sweeping story of Scripture. Last week, as we followed the great book of Genesis that that unveils to us God the Creator, now we transition to Exodus that begins to show us that God is not only the Creator, He is the Rescuer. So Genesis moves to Exodus in these five books of the Torah, the instruction, the foundation, moving from showing us God is the Creator who gives great promises to His people Now we begin to see how these promises are fulfilled in the great rescue. Last week, we looked at the last part of Genesis. Often, you know, we we remember the first part of Genesis, right? If I were to ask everybody here, if you're newer to the faith, you're coming back to the faith, or you just read the Bible a little bit, you know how Genesis begins, right? In the beginning, God. I mean, everybody knows the beginning. Most of us don't know the ending. And the ending is very important. As Joseph dies, he looks forward through the lens of faith to a God who will fulfill his promises. So now as we come into Exodus, there are 400 years between the two, actually 430. And times have changed, but God has not. God's covenant people are in Egypt. And they're waiting on God, and things have gone really hunky-dory. They're flourishing as Exodus opens. But then something changes, because a new king or a new pharaoh emerges on the scenes. And this king is very cruel. God's covenant people now are under oppression and slavery in Egypt. And we begin to see in Exodus 1 through 5, as the story builds and builds with us tension, this king practices infanticide. And uh, the young boys of the Hebrews are designated for destruction. But there is one miraculous boy that is saved from the water. That's what his name means in Egypt. Egyptian Mosaic means to be drawn from the water. And Moses is miraculously drawn from the water, preserved from Pharaoh's infanticide. So the story of Exodus follows this amazing miracle birth. Moses grows up in the palace. We know the story, most of us. And through this impulsive way of identifying with his people, he does an impulsive act and ends up in the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that... Moses encounters the God of the Hebrews, not the God of the Egyptians, the multiple gods. He encounters the one true God in the wilderness. And God calls Moses to do the most unthinkable thing. And Moses, if you read the story, he just drags his heels. I mean, Moses, like all of us, like, God, what? You want me to do what? You want me to go back? I mean, he's escaped for his life. You want me to go back to Egypt? You want me to confront the most powerful man in the universe at this time, the king of Egypt, and call him to let my people go? So Moses is freaking out, but Moses reluctantly goes back, and he confronts Pharaoh. 
And as Exodus chapter 5 ends, we find Moses very disillusioned, much like most of us at times. He thought God wanted him to do something, so he goes to confront Pharaoh, and instead of Pharaoh having compassion, Pharaoh has great cruelty. And God's people are put under even greater oppression. So imagine putting yourself in Moses' sandals. He thought God called him to confront Pharaoh, and he did it, and everything went like this. So as Exodus 5 ends, put yourself in Moses' shoes. In his sandals are great sands of disillusionment and fear and disheartedness. Why? Because Moses, at the end of chapter 5, is standing in the crosshairs of angry rebuke, not only from Pharaoh, but from his own people. So as we enter this text, Moses finds himself in a very dark place, a very dark place. His heart is heavy, and he is deeply discouraged. It seems like God has let him down to his people, and nothing makes sense. It seems like Moses wants to run away. One of the classic stories in the Nelson household is the story of my son Schaefer when he was a young boy. It has become legendary in the apocrypha of the Nelson Annals. And that is, my son Schaefer one day looked at his mom, Liz, and said to her, Mom, why don't you run away? (laughs) (laughs) To which Liz was a bit taken back. She says, Schaefer, why would I do that? And Schaefer, in his own articulation, looked at his mom and said, because no one likes you around here anymore. (laughs) (laughs) This is where Moses is. This is where Moses is. Moses is in a very dark place as we come into this brilliant text of Exodus 6. As we come there, we need to understand that God is going to encounter Moses in a powerful way. So as you have your Bible open, I want you to grasp that Moses feels the beatingness of a broken heart. And look at chapter 5, 22 through 23. Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? (laughs) For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses is precariously dangling on this thread of hopelessness and a lack of faith. And I want to suggest to you, many of us are there in our journey of faith. Some of us have tried to follow God, done the best we can, and life seems to go downhill. Moses, like you and me, in these moments of darkness and doubt and struggle in our faith, needs a fresh dose of encouragement, a divine dose. But what you will notice in in chapter 6 is that God will not change Moses' circumstances. Rather, God will give Moses a greater glimpse of God himself. Now, let me read verses 1 through 5 again. And I want you to put the lens of Moses' hurting heart through Moses' words to him. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. 
I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners or pilgrims. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Moses is reminded of God's past faithfulness. You'll notice the thread of promise woven through this. That God says, I appeared. I was faithful to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, but now I'm going to appear to you in a new way. I'm going to give you a greater sense of revelation. And now God emphasizes his big name. Remember, that's the title of the story, Names. Moses now is confronted with God's great name. You'll notice in the English the word Lord. It's all caps. Do you see that? L-O-R-D. And that distinguishes from another Hebrew word that is capital L, lowercase O-R-D. So why is this name so important? Remember in the cultural context of this time period of human history, the name represented the character of the one who had it. So what does this name mean? Why is it so important? What God is doing is he's taking Moses back to chapter 3, which some of you have already read and open here, to the burning bush moment. And I want us to take, take us back to that, because in the dialogue, we see the centrality of God's name in chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. And if you have your Bible open, scoop back there just a bit. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your forefathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What, the idea is, what on earth shall I say to him? God said to Moses, notice the name, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now God reveals himself in many ways to his people and to his broken world. There are many ways God reveals himself to us. Most of us probably don't have a burning bush moment of transcendence like that. But God's covenant Jewish people understood this name, and they would never speak it out loud for reverence of the holiness of God. This name captures God's self-sufficiency, God's complete otherness from all other gods. And why is this important? Because the context is the polytheistic world of of Egypt. There were gods everywhere. Gods made in the image of man, not a God who made man or men and women in his own image. So God is completely other. His omnipotence, his omnipresence, his holiness, his sovereignty, his complete perfection just radiate from this word. And you will notice if you read through the book of Exodus in our open hair journey, you will notice, and I want you to see this, that there is tied to this word a refrain, kind of an antiphonal refrain, all the way through the story. And it says this, it's repeated like 25 times, so that you may know that I am God, that there is none like me. This is what God is saying to Moses. God knew how discouraged and disillusioned Moses was. And I want us to grasp that he didn't change Moses' circumstance. You know, when we're facing disillusion, when we're facing a hurting heart, when God seems to not come through for us, when our faith is on a thin line of doubt and despair, what we want, right, is to change the circumstance. God, you know, burning bush moment. But God is more concerned that Moses 
gets a bigger view of God. See, the problem here, the tension building in the story, is the puniness of Moses' view of God. The problem is, is that God needed to reveal himself more to Moses. Moses needed a bigger picture of God. God is saying in his self-revelation, Moses, your view of me is too small. And if you're going to lead my people out of Egypt, you're going to have to have a much bigger God than you do now. Perhaps our view of God is way too small too. One of the classic writings in the Christian faith in the 20th century is a little book that I recommend to you if you haven't read it by a very thoughtful writer by the name of A.W. Tozer. It's one of the finest little books. It's about this big, but it's power-packed if you've read it. The title of the book is The Knowledge of the Holy. Tozer begins this classic work, and he speaks to the need of our lives and our nations to have a different view of God. And this is what he says. I think we have a quote for you. Uh, Risa was sweet to add that. But I want you to listen to it carefully as we have it on the screen. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he says, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea about God. Now listen to what he says. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous or amazing or important fact about any person is not what he or she at any given time may say or do, but what he or she in their deep heart conceives God to be like. Moses, in penning the book of Exodus, his primary emphasis is for us, the reader, to see the greatness of God as our rescuer. He wants us to grasp the greatness of God as we journey through life, as we face the most difficult and challenging realities, as we face God's seeming distance and difficulties and doubt. This is the journey of faith. Most of us, again, don't encounter some grandiose Burning bush moment, but the fingerprints of God's power and presence is all around us. We see his beauty and intricacy in nature. This is a burning bush moment of transcendence for us to see. We feel it in the tender embrace of a spouse, the joyful laughter of a child, a brilliant sunset that occurs in mid-America a lot, or a stunning piece of art or music. We sense that pulling of transcendence. But I want us to grasp as we look at Exodus that Exodus points to the greatest revelation of God. That God primarily reveals himself in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. As God incarnate, Jesus is the greatest self-revelation of God. And if we want to know who the God of Exodus is, then the writer Moses is pointing us to look at the son of the promise, the Passover lamb, the one who would come to look at Jesus himself. How do we see Jesus? Well, primarily we see him through this book. I love uh, 
The great Protestant reformer said it better than anybody else that I know in history. Martin Luther said that this book is the manger in which Jesus is laid. The story in open here all year from Genesis to Revelation points to God himself, points to the person of Christ. The great I am. Exodus helps us understand who this God of the Exodus is. The great I am points to the Messiah, Jesus. He is the God who reveals himself preeminently in Emmanuel, Jesus who came to earth. But the God of Exodus and Moses' purpose is not only to reveal who God is to us, but also to unpack for us that he is the God who rescues people. I want you to notice as the text moves forward that the shift of focus is not just the conversation God has with Moses. God first speaks to Moses. Notice the text. Now, as we move to verse 6, God speaks to a hurting people through Moses. What is God's word for his covenant people who are oppressed, who are getting ready to be delivered? What is his word? Notice what God's word says. Verses 6 through 9. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Set name. I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. Notice, I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses and notice because their broken spirit and harsh slavery. For those of you who enjoy the brilliance of literary structure, you will notice here a visible scaffolding of which the writer Moses who penned Exodus wants us to see. It is called a literary inclusio and what it is is like a sandwich. What Moses does in presenting the God who rescues is he takes verse 6 through 8. In verse 6, he wraps, first of all, who God is. I am God. And verse 8, he says, I am God. But in the middle, he gives us seven things God will do. So he wraps this idea around who is God? I am God. And this is what I will do. So through Moses, God communicates not only who he is, but what he will do. And seven things emerge of what God will do. Notice the seven. God says, I will bring you out, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, I will take you, I will be your God, I will bring you into the land, I will give you seven times. So what we see here is that God is the God who rescues And what I want you to notice in this text is that God's salvation, God's deliverance, God's rescue has a threefold aspect to it. And it's woven into the intricacy of the text. First is that God rescues us from something. Secondly, God rescues us to something. And third, and most importantly, the crescendo of meaning is around what God rescues us for. From, to, and for. First. God rescues us from enslavement. Notice verse 6. He says, I will bring you out from the burdens. And I love the New International Version translation. Literally, the yoke of slavery. 
What's important in historical context is that God's covenant people could do nothing. They were powerless in the most superpower of the world. They could have never left on their own. They needed an outside rescue, someone who was more powerful than the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. They couldn't do it on their own. That's the picture. They were helpless and hopeless. I don't know if you've ever been there. I don't think I've ever been in a context where I was totally afraid, fearful, and had no hope. In the Wall Street Journal this past week, there was a discussion about the most recent terrorist attack in Algeria. Maybe you saw that. Islamic fundamentalists took over this energy complex, a vast energy complex in North Africa. And it was brutal torture and savagery. Some survived because four days, after four days, they were rescued by the Algerian special forces. And in the Wall Street Journal article, they were interviewing survivors of this harrowing experience. One guy that stood out to me, he described it in vivid detail of being sequestered by himself, finding a little cubby hole in a distant part of the complex. He was a 38-year-old engineer from Scotland named Ian Strachan. And he describes in the story, it was just harrowing, how for four days he huddled in this cabinet, this corner, under this uh, uh, section of this energy uh, complex, for four days. And all he had was a can of tuna fish, and sipped one glass of water for four days. He could not move out of that escape place, and all he could do with fear, thirst, deprivation, is wait for someone to rescue him. And he describes the moment when the guards that were rescuing knocked on his door. There was no way he could ever get out of there alive by himself. He was completely dependent on an outside rescue. This is the picture that God gives us in Exodus. It is a picture of God's covenant people physically under the torturous and cruel regime of Pharaoh. They had no hope, no power to escape Egypt on their own. They couldn't do it. They were fearful, hopeless, and cruelly treated. The wrath of Pharaoh rested on them. But Exodus points all of us to a greater enslavement. And that is the enslavement of sin. Sin that enslaves all of us and that all of us need a divine rescue from the wrath of a holy God. This picture is brought all the way through the New Testament. And one of the things that's interesting is that as we walk through the story, Pharaoh, who's the most powerful person in, in the world at that time, is actually the one who's enslaved. Not physically, but the irony and paradox of Exodus is that Pharaoh is enslaved to his own self and sin and idolatry. He is the one who is hopelessly enslaved to sin. So the picture of Exodus is a picture of rescue. Rescue from the most egregious and brutal oppression of people in all forms, but it points to the spiritual bondage all of us are in because sin and slavery are so so closely tied together. But I want you to notice that it's a rescue from, but a rescue to. It's a rescue to a new life. Notice verse 6. That God's rescue involves redemption and restoration. 
God's restoration will involve removing people from the yoke, but it will give them a brand new life. And God reminds them, I'm going to take you to a new land, to a brand new life. The idea of God the rescuer is not only taking us from a bad situation to kind of an okay situation, or to rescue us for just a moment, it is to rescue us to a brand new life, a new land, a new people. God's rescue is not only from, but to. It is the rescue to the life we were designed to live in the Garden of Eden, the life we lost because of sin and rebellion. God, our rescuer, rescues us from the bondage of sin and spiritual death and takes us to the new promised land, a new life, a life of new creation, a life of new flourishing, a whole new life. I don't know if you saw this story, but this is one story that has ripped the world. You remember the story in October of a 14-year-old precious girl in Afghanistan? Uh, She had been from Afghanistan and then moved to Pakistan and had been an outspoken at 14 years of age. Her name was Mahala. 14 years of age, an outspoken advocate for the oppression of women in that part of the world. And walking home to school one day, the Taliban attacked her and ambushed her and cruelly beat her almost to death. She was hanging on the thread of death and she was rescued and flown to Britain. And in a British hospital, she recovered remarkably. And she has left the life of oppression and has been given a brand new life in England. And this is the picture of God's rescue. This young girl has the best the world has to offer, living in a new land, in a new life. God's promise of deliverance here in Exodus points to the grand rescuer, points us to live the life we were designed to live. He is the one who can rescue us. It is a new creation life. The Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5, that if anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed, new things have come. The God of Exodus is the God who rescues us. But why does he do it? He not only rescues us from sin and death and rescues us to a brand new life, but he rescues us for himself. He rescues us to know him. Notice the text in Exodus. In verse 7, God says to his covenant people, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you will know I am the Lord God. The word know means an intimate knowledge. It's not a familiarity. It's to know someone intimately. God's focus of rescue is that we can know him intimately, that he rescued us so we can know him in a personal, intimate way. We often use the word salvation. Not in common conversation around probably the work table every day. Religious language often uses salvation, but what does this mean? It's a good word. What is deliverance? What does rescue mean? What is the goal of salvation? The goal of salvation, Exodus reminds us, is that God rescues us so that we might know him. God rescues you from sin and death and from the wrath of a holy God the righteous wrath of a holy God, so that you would know him. See, the rescue of God looks back to the Garden of Eden, the life we lost because of sin and rebellion, and it looks to the cross, the life that Jesus has made possible for you and me to live because of his sacrificial atoning death on the cross. 
It is a story of the great rescuer. One of the great creeds of the church, classic works of the church, is the Westminster Catechism. The Shorter Catechism reads this and raises the question, what is the chief end of man or humanity? Pretty important question, isn't it? What is our purpose? What is the meaning of life? And the answer of the Catechism is this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, understood that we were rescued to know him, that our rescue was not just from something, but to have intimacy with God, that it was relational rescue when he said, oh Lord, you have made us for yourself back in creation, and our hearts are restless till we find rest in you. We often think of heaven as a wonderful place, don't we? And indeed it is. The new heavens and earth will be a wonderful place. It is the promised land our Lord Jesus is leading us to. But the promised land is so brilliant and beautiful, not just because it's beautiful in itself. It is because of the one who we will know intimately there. What makes heaven so great? What makes the promised land that Jesus has made possible for you and me to experience one day? is because he is there. The great rescuer. So this is what the book of Exodus leads us to. And let me ask a couple questions as we think about our own personal life this morning. The book of Exodus raises the question for all of us. What is the condition of our hearts? What is the condition of your heart this morning? You may be feeling like Moses. That you've tried God or you've been doing this and God has sort of let you down. And you may be having a heavy heart this morning. And you need a fresh encounter from God. You need God to reveal himself to you. You need a bigger view of God. Not just more staring at the difficulty of your circumstances. Whatever that may be. Financially, health, a relationship. Or you may be like Pharaoh this morning. Your heart may be hardened to God. You may have believed once. You may have felt a real distance from God. But where is your heart this morning? And are you open for God to speak into your life this morning? To reveal yourself, reveal himself to you in a unique way. Will you be honest with him in the quietness of your heart this morning? Will you allow God to speak to you, to your heart? What is the condition of your heart? Secondly, have you been rescued? The Exodus was a definitive moment in history. And the Exodus at the foot of the cross... It moves us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light is a moment in time when we are rescued by Jesus' grace. When we embrace him as our Lord and Savior, we move from death to life. Rescue is definitive in your life. Have you been rescued? Have you embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Is he your Passover lamb? See, it's not what you have done, it's what Jesus has done. It is trusting in what he has done. That's the good news of the glorious news of the gospel that Exodus points to. It's what Jesus has done. Will you accept him? Have you been rescued by him? In faith and repentance, have you come to him? One of the greatest bondages of enslavement is not just disbelief. It's wrong, focused belief. It is a belief in yourself being your savior rather than Jesus. I've been reading a book that uh, has been really powerful for me. And it captures the idea that sometimes we think that we can be our own savior. 
right? We're pretty good. We do a lot of good things. And if we do so many good works and things, God will accept us into heaven and life will be okay. John Meacham's book, it's a new book and it's becoming a bestseller, is about Thomas Jefferson. It's called The Art of Power. Thomas Jefferson was a man of his times who was deeply embedded in enthroning reason. In Meacham's book, he describes Jefferson's deistic faith. He was obviously a brilliant man, one of the architects of our nation. And for him, his own self and reason was enthroned. This is what he says. This is what Jefferson said in a letter. He says, my fundamental principle would be that we are saved by our good works, which are within our power, and not by faith, which is not within our power. Thomas Jefferson saw himself as his own savior, rescued by his own good works. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a sinner like me, in desperate need of rescue, or your own savior by your own good works? Being your own savior will not work. Jesus has come to be there for you. Maybe this morning you're convinced you don't want rescue. I mean, that's honest to say sometimes, right? Life's good. Sin is fun. Doing things on your own is fun for a while. It's kind of fun thinking we're the master of our fate, right? Captain of the ship. But that end is a perilous illusion. It ends very poorly. See, freedom is not to be able, you know, the capacity to do anything you want to do. Freedom is the ability to do how God, to live, to do what God wants you to do. It's to live as God designed you to live. That's true freedom. And only Christ can give you that. So will you look to Jesus to rescue this morning? Have you been rescued? And are you, are you looking him to be your rescuer today? Lastly, have you said yes to the great invitation? This text in Exodus 6 points twofold. One to the cross of Christ, who is our rescue, and one to the yoke of Jesus. The one who can relieve you of burden. An easy yoke, not a heavy yoke. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me. It's the great invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you experiencing that? Are you experiencing life of rest and apprenticeship and inner transformation being yoked to Jesus? Have you said yes? to the great invitation. Are you an apprentice of Jesus? Have you embraced the yoke? The last book of the Bible brings together the Exodus of the Old Testament and the Exodus of the New Testament in Revelation 15. And in Revelation 15, we have this picture. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb. And it says, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. So who is the God of the Exodus? One before every knee will bow in heaven and earth, the name of Jesus. He is our great rescuer. Are you trusting him to be your rescuer? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the God of the Exodus. That no matter where we are this morning, that we can look to you for deliverance, for rescue from the enslavement and cruelty of sin. And now as we come to you, we celebrate your great rescue, and that you are the great rescuer. In Jesus' name, amen.